Hello and welcome to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. I'm Pete. Today's episode is brought to you with the support of ServiceCore, the easy-to-use software for liquid waste and roll-off operators. I'll start this week by saying thank you to Graham Miller from Tasmania in Australia, who has signed up as a patron. Thank you, Graham. Really appreciate your support, and I've very much enjoyed chatting with you through social media over the past couple of weeks. For this episode, I thought I'd give my thoughts on some of the sanitation-based questions that have been sent through by email or asked on social media over the past few days and weeks. I often respond to these online, but there's just more room to expand in a verbal response in the podcast than there is through a tweet or post. I'll start with an issue that's local to New Zealand, and it was asked by Malcolm. He said, hey Pete, what are your thoughts on New Zealand's three waters reforms, and are you planning an episode about it? While most listeners in New Zealand will have heard about the Three Waters reforms, those of you living overseas probably haven't. In a nutshell, Three Waters is the term used to refer to drinking water, wastewater and stormwater. And here in New Zealand, the government has launched a legal process to reform the way those services are managed and owned. My initial thoughts about tackling this in the show were that I probably should cover Three Waters because it's such an important issue, and although these reforms are specific to New Zealand, the underlying themes are probably relevant in pretty much every other country around the world, especially those where sewers need upgrades or repair, or where the quality of the drinking water isn't always guaranteed. However... The Three Waters reforms proposed by the New Zealand government are so incredibly complex that I'm not sure I can describe them in a simple and easy to understand way. And it's so controversial that I doubt I could find any guests who are able to discuss it without prejudice or bias. To be honest, I've heard lots of different people talk about this in the media and it's hard to know who's telling the truth. That said, I've raised it now so I'm going to try my best to summarise the basic facts and focus on what we know. The Department of Internal Affairs published a summary of the proposals earlier this month. I'll put a link to that summary in the notes in case you want to read more, but the report states that In July 2020, the New Zealand government launched a Three Waters Reform Programme with the ambition of significantly improving the safety, quality, resilience, accessibility and performance of Three Waters services in ways that are efficient and affordable for New Zealanders. Now, I don't think anyone in the country will object to that, I've said many times on the show that I've seen boil notices on drinking water in many towns on both the North and South Islands during the 18 months we were travelling in the caravan, and there are regular occasions where beaches and waterways have been polluted by sewage, either by accidental or deliberate discharge, and where we've had extensive flooding during heavy rain. Based on that alone, I definitely agree that something needs to be done. The next bit of the report states, Currently, New Zealand's three water system is not set up in a manner that will enable the achievement of this ambition and is facing a range of issues and a series of challenges that taken together mean service delivery arrangements are ineffective, inefficient and no longer fit for purpose. Across New Zealand, drinking water, stormwater and wastewater are managed by 67 local councils. Some of those councils manage everything in-house, some have set up council-owned companies and some use private contractors to manage the infrastructure and the work required to deliver those services. Overall, the Three Waters sector is operated by about 5,000 staff who provide services to 4.3 million customers. Given the distribution of the population in New Zealand, those 67 arrangements are all very different and the communities that each local authority serves are all very different too. Auckland Water, for example, provides services to our largest centre of population with over 1.6 million people. In the far north and the deep south, there are rural communities in very remote locations where there are just a handful of residents and they typically rely on rainwater and septic tanks. 
Where this all gets controversial is in one, the evidence that the government has used to support its claims that reforms are required, and two, the ownership model that the government has proposed. Again, I'll try and stick to the facts, but one of the biggest concerns is that the government has spent millions of dollars on a series of very childish TV ads to make their point. I'll read this from the report, but the government's reform includes proposals to establish four statutory public-owned water service entities to provide safe, reliable and efficient water services. So that's to replace all 67 with just four. Enable those water services entities to own and operate three waters infrastructure on behalf of the communities they serve, enabling them to access cost-effective finance from capital markets to invest in maintaining and upgrading that infrastructure. Now that bit is controversial because at the moment all of that infrastructure has been paid for by the local ratepayers and what the government are proposing is to transfer all of that infrastructure to the four new bodies and there's an argument about the degree of compensation that will be paid. The next proposals within the reforms are to provide an ongoing public ownership model for the new water services entity that protects against further privatisation, to establish independent competency-based boards to govern each water entity, and to set a clear national policy direction for the three water sector, together with an economic regulation regime to ensure efficient service delivery and to drive achievement of efficiency gains and consumer protection mechanisms. Catched in those glossy terms, everything seems to be fairly straightforward, but where it gets controversial is the way the government has pushed this forward and that the reforms include mechanisms for the recognition of iwi and Maori rights and interests in the ownership and control of the three waters system. Now, I don't really want to open that particular thread today, but it's fair to say that the proposals around ownership and control are seen by many as unfair and controversial. In fact, I don't think any local councils have supported the proposals, and indeed three local councils have launched a legal process against the Three Waters reforms in the High Court. That's a really quick summary, but back to Malcolm's question, what are my views on Three Waters? Well, I'll be honest and say I don't understand the ins and outs enough to make an informed comment about the proposals for ownership and control, but any improvements to the Three Waters infrastructure and performance will need more investment rather than bureaucracy. Nobody's going to achieve anything if they invest public money in lawyers, consultants and ads on TV rather than in treatment works, sewers and pipes. As I say, I'll put a link to the report published by the Department of Internal Affairs in the notes for the show if you want to read more. And if you're an expert on Three Waters and you'd like to have a conversation with me during the show, please get in touch. Just email pete at getflush.online. With fuel prices at an all-time high, every extra hour our drivers are out on the road is costing at least $100. Driver wages and fuel are the biggest cost of PRO's businesses which means inefficient routes are the number one thing eating into our profits currently. This all sounds familiar, then you might ask yourself, are my routes optimized? Do my stop orders maximize service time and minimize windshield time? Is each route close to eight hours? We all want to cut back on overtime. Do my routes have the right amount of stops and no overlap? If you answered no or unsure about any of these, then you should look at Service Core software. Service Core is an easy-to-use software built specifically for liquid waste and roll-off businesses. It's going to help you get your jobs done, get paid, and provide better service to all your customers. Service Core's routing engine is going to make sure all your routes are optimized, balanced, and dense with only a few clicks. So you can go to sleep at night knowing you're getting every last dollar of profit you can out of each of your routes. Now's the time you need to be thinking about this. Come see what we can do at servicecore.com. The next question I want to tackle is perhaps a much simpler one. It was asked by Michael Jr. from Hero Site Solutions in Ipswich in the UK. Michael said, 
can I ask what is your process to remove uric scale from plastic portable toilets? What chemicals or acid do you use and how do you apply it? Great question, Michael. I covered this in a fair amount of detail when I spoke to Tina Stinnett from Sunrise Environmental way back in episode 8 of season 1. That was in June 2020. I'll put a link in the notes. And I've been back to the issue a few times when I've talked about cleaning regimes. With repeated use, toilets and urinals will suffer a build-up of grey-coloured chalky film on the surface of the toilet or urinal. When it's hardened, we call it uric scale, and it's made up of deposits derived from urine and hard water. As well as looking unsightly, uric scale smells of pee, even more so in hot weather, and it can be really hard to remove. For example, it won't rinse off with just water, and if it's a thick coating, it won't shift even if you scrub it with a brush. But with the right approach and with a little bit of know-how, you can remove uric scale, and indeed you can prevent it from building up in the first place. If you run your finger around the inside of a new urinal before it goes into service, the plastic is very smooth. Put that unit on site for a week and, wearing a latex glove obviously, run your finger around the inside of the urinal again and it will feel rough like a very fine sandpaper. That's a fine film of uric scale and it can build up really quickly. You might not see it but it's there and you'll definitely feel it. As I say, make sure you wear your glove. If you give it a squirt of household bleach and a decent scrub with a scouring pad every time you service that restroom, you'll remove that fine film and the uric scale won't become an issue. Uric scale becomes a problem because operators typically don't clean the inside of the urinal. And once it's visible to the naked eyes of chalky film, you'll really need to up your game. There are a number of different uric scale removers on the market. All the major chemicals, suppliers and manufacturers sell one version or another. But you can also use a generic product such as spirits of salt, which is hydrochloric acid. And you'll find that in most hardware shops. Whichever remover you use, the easiest way to apply it is to dilute it as required, pour it into a spray bottle and spray that on the urinal before you do anything else in the cabin. Make it the first thing you do when you arrive on site. Leave it to soak while you pump and refill the tank, then scrub it, rinse and perhaps give it another spray with the remover before you leave site. That will keep working while you're not there. In really bad cases, it's going to take a couple of visits before the urinal comes really clean, but it will work. Obviously, when you use chemicals in this way, it's important to wear safety glasses and gloves, and if you put it in a spray bottle, make sure it's properly labelled and marked. On a similar note, Jean Clay asked, when you service restrooms in hot weather, do you use more or less water and blue chemicals? I know it sounds redundant, but I actually know a company using less water. The issue behind this question is that in hot weather, the aroma generated by the waste in a portable toilet tank can be noticeably stronger and much more pungent than it is in winter when the weather is cold. I'm sure you know what I mean. Before I talk about chemicals, I'll answer this question by saying I'm a strong advocate for using lots and lots of water in both open tank and recirculating flush toilets. Now I know from experience that many operators pour in as little as 10 litres or 2.5 gallons. There are a few reasons why that happens. First off, it's really quick. It doesn't take very long to pour in one bucket of water or suck up that amount when you come to clean the unit. Secondly, most operators carry a limited supply of water. Fresh water is heavy and it takes up a lot of space. And it's common for tanks used in the industry to have a smaller compartment for fresh water and a larger one for waste. If you put less water in the tank at the start, there'll generally be less volume in the toilet when you come to service it. And if you're pumping less volume from each unit, you can typically service more toilets before you have to empty that vacuum tank on the truck. And if the toilet tank holds 60 gallons and you put in 15 gallons of water when you service it, that leaves you 45 gallons of capacity for waste. If you only put in 5 gallons, you have 55 gallons for waste, which in theory means a unit with less water in it can accommodate more users over the course of a week. 
However, it's not as simple as basic maths, and using less water does come at a cost. The biggest issue is that even with a proper dose of blue, waste matter will sit above the waterline. That's called mounding, and in my experience, blue works best and keeps all the smells under control when the waste is submerged. In hot weather, any waste that's exposed to the air above the waterline will turn putrid really quickly, and it will soon start to smell really, really bad. Using more water encourages the waste to disperse. It helps to prevent mounding because the waste will sink and float away, and if it's submerged, the chemicals can do their job and suppress those foul odours. But of course, using more water presents something of a catch-22. Because you'll use more water each time you prime the tank, you'll collect a larger volume of waste. When you pump that tank, each toilet will take longer to pump, and if you charge by volume at the wastewater treatment plant, it will cost you more to dump the waste. But I promise, using more water will do a lot to control the stench and it will definitely improve the user's experience in your restroom. And when I say more water, I mean as much as 40 litres or 10 gallons. Now that's a huge amount and most operators aren't going to do that, but it will make a big difference. In terms of which chemicals and how much chemicals to use, there is a lot of choice. Most of the manufacturers and suppliers sell blue in a different range of fragrances in both liquid and sachet form. I like sachets because they're easy to use. Now I've heard some operators say they double the dose in summer, but I don't think you need to use more blue if you use more water, especially if the restroom is being cleaned every week, and certainly not if it's being cleaned more often than that. While adding more water will help reduce the odour, the only product I know that will eliminate the odour completely is Portaclear. I'll put links in the notes, but I published two episodes where I spoke with David Pipkin from Portaclear, and Curtis Ingalls at Crapper King is now acting as the US distributor, so you can always get in touch with him if you'd like to know more. The final thing I'll say about this question is that operators shouldn't be afraid to ask their clients to pour in a bucket of water if the toilet begins to smell. It's as simple as that. If the client pours in a bucket of water at the end of the day before they leave the site, they can usually sink any material that's above the waterline and that will help keep the smell down overnight. If you've got a question about the industry that you'd like me to answer on the show, please get in touch. I'm happy to share my thoughts and ideas and if I don't know the answer, I'll try and find an expert who can help. Just email me at pete at getflushed.online. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you for your time. Once again, I've been Pete and you've been listening to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast brought to you with the support of Service Corps.